How might you tackle the task of recruiting 39 new board members? And how does that even happen? Well, it happens when you have two boards, one of about 30 that governs the institution and one that plays a vital role in mobilizing, developing a leadership pipeline, increasing resources, both human and financial, and enriching the high-level thinking an organization does. And this second board has 150 spots. This is all happening at the Union for Reform Judaism, the largest organization in the reform movement. And you're going to find my conversation with the woman charged to co-lead the efforts to identify a diverse slate of 39 folks. Totally fascinating. Daryl Messinger has been a leader in the reform movement since like forever. She was the URJ's first female board chair. And if that wasn't a big enough task, what happens is that the former chair then becomes a chair or a co-chair of the nominating committee. What I think you're going to love about this conversation is how Daryl and her committee approached the task. The conversations they had before they got down to the business of building a list of leads and prospects, conversations not just about diversity, but digging deep into and thinking much more deeply about the set of experiences that build leadership. You'll find smart and passionate volunteer leaders in every nook and cranny of our society, and I've met a ton of them. Daryl is something special, and everyone who has the privilege of knowing her knows it. She joined me a while back to talk about what it looks like to be a five-star board chair, as the entire nonprofit universe is always grappling with the hunt for board members. Daryl has offered us very, very thoughtful insights. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Daryl Messinger is a woman with a mission. She is a national leader in the Jewish community who invests her time and resources to work to create an inclusive, dynamic 21st century Judaism. As an investment manager and communications executive, Daryl has a long and impressive track record of working to grow and scale businesses. She also plays a mean game of pickleball. Hi, Daryl. How are you? Great, Joan. Can't wait to take you on on the pickleball court. Just a matter of months here. I think we're going to have our our first championship tournament. A tournament. Yes. See, Daryl Messinger doesn't play pickleball. She organizes tournaments. That's what you need to know about Daryl's DNA. So let's start here. You would think that after being the chair of an organization the size of the Union for Reform Judaism, they might go easy on you. But no, the prior chair gets a really big job, goes on to become the co-chair of the nominations committee. What's the thinking about that trajectory in the URJ's sort of governance strategy? I think it's a holdout, quite frankly. I'm not sure that it makes any sense at all for the immediate past chair to be the nominating chair. It's why I had a co-chair. Mm-hmm. who had been the trustees committee chair uh, not that long ago and had really 
great knowledge of who was currently on the board. As chair, you might be a little less in touch with that about who just came on and who, and you might be more attuned to who just went off. And that's not necessarily the characteristics that you might be looking for in your next board. Is the think was the thinking that you knew the board well as the chair and would thus be best suited? Because I, I don't think this is uncommon. I think a lot of times people who are chairs I think this move has into been, nominations. This has been the custom, and it wasn't something that we really examined when we went through uh, some intentional governance changes. Right. However, right. I think going forward, it may be something that we look at differently. It is why we went towards a co-chair and had for some time now had two individuals, the immediate past and someone who had been close to the current recent nominees help with, with the process. Right. Now, I opened this I opened this podcast by talking about filling 39 seats and I think it should be made clear to all who listen that there was not some mass exit from <laughs> from the board of the URJ. Maybe you can just briefly fill fill people in on how it came to be that you were filling that many seats. So, it is a uh, as you said an advisory board of 150 individuals. And about a quarter of the seats are filled every two years by new new folks. And yep. that math gets you right around um, that number. <laughs> um, so you... Um, Plus or minus. So, so I talked a little bit about um, the role of this entity. Some people think of advisory boards as sort of boards in name only. Sometimes they don't have a very clear charge. This is actually a very different kind of group of 150 that had to be curated quite carefully because they have a set of real responsibilities that, that is unlike what some people might call an advisory board. Right. I mean, I think you outlined those responsibilities, this idea that they are the 150 leaders of a significant movement in Reform Judaism that is known as Reform Judaism, a denomination of Judaism within North America, the largest, most diverse uh, movement. They need to represent the full diversity of that movement and be able to, to access and pull in others as they do, as they do that representation. Yep. And and I um, having played a having had a hand in that governance restructuring, ensuring that these board member that this board had a very clear charge and a clarity of roles was very very central to the work that was done. And then right, I I, I, I I use the word advisory because they don't necessarily have all of the governing functions you might think of. For a board, on the other hand, they do have responsibility for increasing resources. They are there to help with strategic and generative thinking yep. and to advise the smaller governing board. And those are very important functions. You want folks who have perspective and willingness to express what they believe should be the vision and mission of, of the organization. 
Correct. Yeah, definitely. So, and in fact, we steered clear of using the word advisory board because we, we empowered it with a set of uh, responsibilities and authority that, that really did not advisory board did not actually align with it, with that. So you had this really tight timetable because of how elections happen at the URJ. They're not rolling. But what impressed me was in our conversations about your approach towards you and Carrie working with the committee is how much time you took up front, right? That the time you took at the very beginning as a committee to have thoughtful conversations on sort of what I heard as three topics, leadership, diversity and fundraising. Now, of course, there's intersections in, you know, they're sort of overlapping. But let's begin with leadership. I'd love to hear about the conversation your committee had, because this is what it's all about, right? Every one of these 150 people are expected to play a leadership role in the reform movement and must see themselves in that way. So how did you and the committee talk about this idea of leadership and how did it inform the way that you went about thinking about recruitment? So oftentimes in the past, when we thought about leaders, there was a assumption made about what types of activities and ways that folks showed that they were in fact leaders. And when we really started to think about all the ways that folks can show up as leaders, we realized that our assumptions that you had to have served on your congregational board, maybe as its president, you were older because you were had free time um, and had already raised your family and or for that matter, had a family and um, were financially able to take the time off of work. And so we realized there were so many assumptions about who, in fact, could be a leader on this board that we wouldn't get the type of forward-thinking, open-minded perspective about what was really going on in our communities today that we needed to be the, the mission bearer for this movement. And that we needed to recognize that while all of what I just described was great, and you want some folks with those characteristics, it excluded so many others. And so we started to think a little bit differently about leadership and how folks might express leadership in different ways at different stages and with much more um, heterogeneous avenues into the, the service of uh, the reform movement. Did you come up with a different kind of rubric for those sets of experiences? I mean, I'm just curious uh, that you're, you're absolutely right, is that there, there had longstanding been sort of one picture. How'd you draw a new picture? Well, first of all, one way you draw a new picture is you make sure your nominating committee looks a lot different. Yeah. Right? So if you have folks that have a really wide swath of experience th themselves, they can help see 
and access different networks that uh, are are going to yield a different makeup to your leadership pool. So that's one way. The second is you you um, have a conversation, and it really was a conversation about what are the what are the limiting assumptions we have today about leaders, and are they in fact true? Because some some assumptions are true, but there are quite a few that are not. Uh, for instance, younger professionals, right? Younger professionals don't have the time or the money to participate on a North American board. Well, maybe they, that's a lot of assumptions, right? One that you need a lot of time and you need a lot of money, but let's not, let's not assume you need either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may in fact find young professionals that have both time and significant capacity mm-hmm. and, and a very different perspective about how they can add to the organization in meaningful ways. That's just one aspect of this. Yes. The other um, piece of this, uh, as you and Carrie and the committee were working on this process, was recognizing that the data suggests that that Jews are not just found in congregations. Right. And so that's a whole nother piece of this is that the that the world of, you know, North American Jews is very different today from what it was, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago. That that is true. And uh, we have a bylaw constraint that uh, we need to have folks uh, be members of congregations to serve on the board but we did make that the constraint for looking for a good leader. Right. Meaning if we could find a good leader and they were willing to join a congregation, we were willing to nominate them. And in many cases, we created uh, you know, connection for those individuals with a congregation so that they could be nominated. Or uh, I bet I, I bet the other way that you that you looked at it was is identifying where you might look for that set of leadership experiences, identify someone who was already a member of a congregation rather than looking and seeking out somebody in a congregation who had those set of experiences, right? The, the, right, so, it, it worked both ways. Yeah. I want to say one other thing, and maybe sure. we should be moving to diversity here we as should. well, and that is that just like not all families, not all individuals belong to congregations um, necessarily. Not all individuals are uh, white, heterosexual families Mm -hmm. um, in, 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 in partnered relationships or committed relationships. We are the population we are um, serving is a multiracial, multicultural population, and our board did not reflect that reality. And so that was very much on our mind, and we made significant progress in that regard, but we still have a lot of work. I don't want anyone to think that we've, you know, checked a box and we're moving on. We don't have to worry about this, but 
But in, again, in order to do a better job of identifying those leaders and those folks that are not the same as who already are serving, we needed a nominating committee that reflected that diversity and we needed to organize our prospecting in very different ways than we had in the past. So I think that's a good segue to diversity. And how did you approach that? So you have an organization that had looked at leadership a certain way. Now it has to look a different way, but most of the people uh, who are leaders in the organization look that other way. So how did you, how did you navigate that? So we created a nominating committee that was probably larger than most nominating committees. We had about uh, just under, I think we had 19 people on the nominating committee. Wow. Maybe okay. 20. And they were not all members of the board. About a third of them were not yet members of the North American board. Several of them have asked to become members and have at this point been nominated and elected because they got so excited by the uh-huh. prospect. Right. And uh It was a diverse group in terms of gender, sexual orientation, geographic representation. We had Jews of color on this nominating committee. And we organized them into cohorts that represented the target populations we were trying to recruit from. Mm -hmm. So rather than just ask our normal, typical sources, uh, rabbis, executive directors, current congregational presidents for nominees, we went out and organized a group of young professionals, a group of folks who are looking for folks of color and other diversity. We organized a group that was looking for folks that were coming from less traditional backgrounds, meaning uh, not congregational necessarily, but maybe from our camps or from our social justice networks. Mm -hmm. And we had another group that um, was looking at our more typical congregant leader um, as well and looking within that group for individuals that maybe weren't your typical average uh, North American board member, a little younger, a little not a straight, whatever it might be, without children, you know, there there were all sorts of ways you could uh, slice and dice along those lines. So uh, I hope you're paying attention to some key takeaways in just that, um, that answer to that question. The first important takeaway is you can have a nominations committee and invite people to join it who are not currently on your board. It's a very, very good strategy. The second piece of the puzzle is that those people get invested. When you invite people to come closer to your organization to serve on a nominations committee, guess what happens? They want to be closer still. And before you, so it's an excellent, excellent cultivation strategy for prospective board members. Maybe they don't even know it at the time they're asked. And then the other thing that I heard was, how strategic this is and intentional. This isn't, there's no butts and seats 
strategy here for this kind of how do I look at leadership differently? How do I actually diversify my pool of candidates? It's not something you can hurry up and do. Even though Daryl and Carrie and their committee had to hurry up and do it. This was like a very strategic, intentional process on steroids, right? Yes, and I think sometimes the shorter time frame works for you. Yeah. It, it felt, let me tell you, I was a nervous wreck in the middle of it because I had to deliver in 60 days. Like, boy, this this committee rose to the challenge and they pursued folks. They had conversations. And in the process, we spoke to 150 individuals is what right. our latest count was. So and that about has that. created... That has created, not everybody was ready. Not everybody could do it now, but it created a pipeline list that we have curated yes. and kept and we can go back to. And it's at least a starting point. But, you know, we didn't just call 40 people and get 40 nominations. Right. Right. Well, and we right. called 150 and we reached out in a last email probably to a, a thousand plus. Right. So I, I want to be clear, you know, this is is uh, a process. Yes, was intentional, but it was incredibly open. Uh, and the, the key here was having those conversations and figuring out how to describe what it is we were looking for in order to get folks excited and willing to participate. Sometimes we succeeded. Most of the time we got folks noting for the future and sometimes it just wasn't a good fit. Okay, so two more takeaways from Daryl's last answer. One, a committee that understands its charge, knows what success looks like, and, and, and for which there is some time sensitivity, not only can be successful, but my sense is they feel a tremendous sense of pride at what they accomplished. And this is the secret sauce of committee work that people just don't understand, that if you can actually get a committee with a clear charge, what six defines success and get people going on it, it actually, it's not a burden on them. They're excited about participating and it makes them, it brings them even closer to your organization. So I, that's certainly something I heard in what Daryl said. And the second thing was they talked to a lot of people. What do you think happens when you talk to a lot of people? A lot of people know more right, about who the URJ is, what its work is about. And so they were also this just incredible team of ambassadors who were out there talking about the work of the URJ much more broadly than a, will you be on my board? It worked. There were, we were making it up as we went along. So <laughs> it sounds a lot better right now than the way I remember it. Um, the other thing I would say is, this was a great group and they really, as I said, rose to the challenge. However, we could have done more to give them a, not so much a script, but role play experience mm. with these conversations. Cause they were talking to recommenders. They were talking to potential candidates. They were talking to 
our staff members to get recommendations. And not everyone had all the information easily, you know, off their their tongue, whatever the right expression is here. You know, it didn't flow as well. And so I think we might have lost some folks because the sale wasn't done quite as eloquently as it might have been if we had just a touch more time and could have done some training. Well, and those that's obviously, those are the kinds of lessons you'll take into that the next chair and co-chair will take into their, um, into their adventure when the time comes. The Nonprofit Leadership Lab is led by Joan Gary and is the world's best online community for leaders of small nonprofits. Learn how to raise more money, build the board of your dreams, grow a large audience of supporters, and so much more. To learn more and request an invitation to become a member, please go to nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. That's nonprofitleadershiplab.com slash podcast. Um, talk, talk a little bit about fundraising. How did you approach that as it related to this whole notion of leaders and diversity? And So let's talk a little bit about fundraising. So this was probably the toughest area. And it's part of the ongoing culture shift that we've had at the URJ for at least the last six years since I became chair. We want the board to see themselves as contributing to the what I have used, the culture of philanthropy. Mm-hmm. And that's a culture that says that everyone is a philanthropist at any any giving level. Right. And that what your obligation is, is to be, is to model generosity and a a commitment through um, committing your own financial resources. Now that could mean very different things for different folks, but it's one of the criteria we used for um, differentiating who might be on the board from those who to what? And, you know, in some cases, there were individuals who said, well, you just want me for my money. And that's not the case. And I really, I can offer you so much more than money. And that's not the point here. The point is that each board member models generosity, philanthropic um, willingness and commitment And so we ask folks to make a personally meaningful contribution Uh to make it one of the three uh, largest annual charitable gifts that they make each year and that they uh, do so in a open handed way that, you know, they don't, that it's not a, it's not a, uh, if I give you this, you'll give me this position or, you know, in, it, it's, it's in a general, in a, in a sense of generosity, generosity and, and a sense that this is part of their duty to the organization to help grow the resources of the organization in every way possible. We have been trying to get folks to think more expansively about what they can give. Right. And so where we had a lot of discussion is, do we give a number or not? And 
we had really moved the current board to give far more and to see themselves as as able to give more than was the case in prior years. Right. And we don't want to lose that either. We don't right. want to make it sound like, well, you all, you know, you can be generous, but this new group, they they can't be as generous. Right. right. Uh, so we it was a balancing act. I was pleasantly surprised at how willing and open folks were. There were some situations where folks were not comfortable committing to giving, um, you know, at the as at, that their gift, their annual gift would might not be one of their top three. And so they weren't willing to come on the board and that's okay. You know, you know, you have to accept that they're, they have to be true to themselves and we have to be true to our, ourselves as well. And what we're expecting. Well, and uh, again, teasing out the, the, the big lesson in that statement is being clear that this is part of what board service looks like and this is an expectation. And for somebody who says, I can't make it one of my top three, right? And that, that, that set, that there's something in that that says, okay, good, we've had a very clear conversation and maybe now is not the right time. And this is this is a place where organizations get tripped up all the time, is that they're not willing to be clear about what is expected in terms of giving or working to procure new financial resources for the organization. They, they dance around it. They don't say anything. And then you end up with a board that that doesn't embrace that. And what I feel like you all did so beautifully was was weave that together with with the other sets of responsibilities as well as the opportunities that board service presents. Time will tell. We did a debrief the other day, and one of the committee members had an interesting perspective. She said, you know, this financial commitment isn't really a nominating issue. It's a development issue. And I'm not sure I agree with that, but there is an ongoing development challenge for any organization to help educate board members about how their giving makes a difference and how their philanthropy and can really be seen as uh, leading. And it's not about a dollar amount. It's about how they talk about mm-hmm. and express uh, their commitment to the organization. So, you know, when someone uh, stands up and says, this is an organization that I give to a lot of a lot of things, but this is among my three largest annual contributions. Or I doubled my gift last year because I was so excited about XYZ program. Those are the kinds of statements that you want your board members comfortable making and more than just comfortable, like eager. Enthusiastic. Yep. Right. And, yep. and that they see themselves as adding to this culture. Philanthropy is a, in my, in my mind, is a no-cut sport. 
it's a lot of ways, Joan, it's a lot like pickleball. You don't have to be great at pickleball. Everyone can play. And I will guarantee the, even if you're against really great players, they will have a good time. You might get beat pretty bad, but you'll have fun too. I had not made the connection between pickleball and philanthropy, but I, um, there could be a blog post, and I promise I will credit you. Whenever. Um, just as um, two final questions, and um, just to bring it to life a little bit, a profile, doesn't, you don't have to talk specifically about an individual, but maybe a couple of profiles of new folks you brought on as a result of this process that bring something really quite different to the, to the North American board. And then I want to end by talking about the culture shift of changing your board. Well, we have an individual, trans uh, male, who um, worked with youth in Arizona and uh, and is part of, and I'm going to forget the name of the specific organization, but it's an Obama Foundation organization working with teens who are at risk. Uh, And um, he moved to uh, South Carolina and uh, is now a member of a congregation there um, because he was so excited about joining our board. And we are very excited about having him. Uh, He grew up in a reformed congregation in Arizona and uh, very much sees himself as a reformed Jew and very excited to have him on the board. Another individual is a Jew of color from Memphis who has a kosher catering business <laughs> um, and uh, had worked in her congregation years ago and was on their board, had stepped off and joins us now um, you know, at a different stage in her life. Um, and ready to add her set of experiences um, to our um, expanding program offering. The last question is actually a question you really can't answer because we don't know yet, right? Is these folks represent a different kind of intentional curated recruitment process and they join, you know, 120 other folks and... You know, I always say that you add one per, one new person to the board and the board changes, right? This is going to be a real culture shift for the Union for Reform Judaism and that entity that is the North American board. And the intentionality of creating a new culture that is a reflection of both what the veterans bring as well as the new folks is going – will be – one of the critical things that happens over the next year. I just wonder if you have any reflections on that because I think about, I've been thinking about that a lot. We're going to need your help. <laughs> I, I think it's a, it's a big question because this is just step one right. and very needed. You can't go forward without it. On the other hand, if this is all we do, we will fail. Right. 
Right. Um, if we don't think about how we change our structures, we will not succeed. If we have to have everyone working in the same ways, in the same committee structures, in the same in the same conversations, like we have had for you know the last 150 plus years, we will not succeed because folks aren't going to hang around if they don't feel like they have uh, a voice and a way of making change in meaningful ways. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely the challenge. Yeah, and I and 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 again, you know, as we and I wouldn't blame them. No. <laughs> right. It's not. It's not on them. It's on us. Correct. It's on all of us. It's on everybody to respect the group that has been a part, has been leading the movement. You know, it's it's all, everybody has a role in making that culture shift. But it is, I want to be really clear as we, as we close out this conversation, don't be daunted about the 39. Don't be daunted about the 150. The, the lessons in this, and that's why I really wanted Daryl to speak with you today, the lessons are universal. Every single thing that Daryl said today is as relevant for a board of 12 as it is for their board of 150. And when you add one new person, right, one new person to a board of 12, there's a culture shift and a, and a, and a difference and a, and a way in which that group needs to be nurtured in a new and different way. And it's incumbent upon everybody to be thinking about that. It is just not enough to, to think differently about recruiting. You have to think differently about how you operate, how you work together, what are the, you know, the sort of top to bottom. It's a big change. It's a big change. And Maybe we'll we'll uh, fast forward a year from now, and we'll bring on, you know, somebody from the board to to speak to how that culture shift has, what bumps in the road they had, and lessons and takeaways from that piece of piece of the puzzle as well. It will be interesting to see. I'm sure we'll make advances, as well as some, you know unfortunate mistakes. There will be a lot of failing forward, but it it could not have happened without an intentional process of really working to get the right people on the bus. And um, yeah, I'm sorry. So no, the one thing I will say, Joan, in today's world, there's so little benefit of the doubt given. And, and that's the one thing I think we all have to ask from each other. Yeah. It's just, you know, if if there are things that aren't done as well as they could have been or could be, then let's can we have a little grace, a little grace, a little benefit of the doubt? Yes. And will that ha- can we can we get there? Yeah. Um, I it, it's gonna. I, that's the one aspect of this that I continue to be concerned about because. Everyone is, you know, it's it's part of COVID. It's part of where we were as a society even before COVID. But it, I see it in so many ways right now. The ability of folks to be patient yeah. um, is is 
is that difficult. Is lo- yeah. It's hard right now. I think that's right. And I think this notion, I'm, I just finished reading a book called Subtle Acts of Exclusion, which is actually a very interesting take on the world of microaggressions. And they rename them Subtle Acts of Exclusion because they're neither micro nor are they aggressions. And the base, part of the basic practicalness of this is you assume good intention right? That everybody comes from a place of good intention. And that if you level the playing field that way in terms of good intention, as well as your deep, everyone has a deep and abiding commitment to the, to the Union for Reformed Judaism. That is the critical foundation to grace and patience, seems to me. Let's hope. There you go. Daryl Messinger, um, it is always a pleasure to chat with you. You you have a really lovely combo platter of uh, determination, commitment, and passion for the reform movement, and it's, um, it's always really inspiring. So thank you for joining us. Thank you, Joan. All right. Take good care, and um, thanks for the work that you do, and we will see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.